Okay, this is Musical Explorations, and this is your host, Ted Peterson. We're going to continue looking at the sonata form. It was a sonata in D minor by Domenico Scarlatti, and it's curious, and uh, we'll explain why that is. Why are we belaboring so much time on the sonata form? It's because it is the most versatile and most used form in classical music. It's one that developed out of public theater. It uh, was finally codified into a formal style and a form that, that composers have used in varying degrees, all different types of uh, ways that composers have used it over the years, uh, including to our day. We looked at two sonatas to see how two different composers adopted the sonata form identified with the classical period. This is the classical period we call as the period of, of Mozart and Haydn for the most part, but there were other composers that were working in that time. We found out that the basic form of the sonata is an exposition, a development, and a recapitulation. And the exposition was one or two themes, sometimes more, with some transition material, a modulation. Remember what modulation, moving from one key to another. Then a development section in the, in the dominant, uh, modulated to the dominant, and then in the dominant key with the five of, let's say, C major, the G, or in A major, the E. Um, we would then do like an improvisatory passage or a development passage where you would, you would develop the theme, one of the themes in, in some way, and, but we saw some variations in that. And then a recapitulation where you bring the main themes back again, but in, with different harmonies and a little bit different, uh, a different look. In other words, it wasn't a, a, a rote recapitulation. It was a recapitulation by theme, but then you would even alter that and sometimes even add new material in recapitulations. And they did this to keep it interesting. Okay, they, they, uh, to, to stick with one form and pedantically follow that form uh, was, was considered very poor taste. Uh, with the idea of this, take this form and then do something original with it. Remember the sonata came from public theater. 
The idea was sound. Where most music was singing, they would have this public theater, and the instrumentalist would perform. And they, some like today, just like today, we have fantastic guitarists and uh, uh, other instrumentalists who do uh, wonderful things in jazz world, even rock guitarists do these great improvisatory things. They did it then too. And it's one of the sad things in classical music is that we've lost that improvisatory nature of the music. Uh, they used to have long sections where, where composers uh, and performers would just go off. Brahms was well noted for being playing a, a piece of his in concert and, and then completely drifting off from the music and going in a completely different direction. But we've lost that sense of that improvisatory sense of music. And one of the reasons, of course, is as music becomes more formalized, it becomes more structured, and it becomes more kind of hidebound in a sense. So it happens with it with every musical form. It doesn't seem to escape anybody. But w improvisation is one of the things that classical musicians are trying to get back into music. They want it to be more like jazz in a sense, but not based on jazz uh, ideas. And jazz ideas are a little bit different than classical ideas. So uh, I use two two models. Now I chose two models simply because two sonata models, one from Mozart and one from Beethoven. And why did I choose these models? One was they're very well known. Everybody knows uh, the little sonata in, uh, in C by Mozart um, and everybody knows the Moonlight Sonata. Okay, Now what is so interesting about these two sonatas? And that is they're neither follow the model. Now, composers don't study scores so they can under, just to study the score. It's not just, it's a, not an abstract idea to figure things out. They do want to figure things out and figure out what a composer did and how the composer worked. The idea of studying scores for a composer is to get insight into how a composer thinks. And one of the professors I had uh, at school gave us an assignment one time, and he said, take this Little uh, uh, little Beethoven sonata, one of the uh, uh, easier Beethoven sonatas. And he says, uh, well, I'm going to give you the first part up here to this part of the exposition, and then you take it and see where you go based on the model that he gave us, which was an analysis, and see what you could do with the piece. How would you take it? Where would you go with it? It was very difficult to... Uh, to first of all emulate Beethoven's style. There were some people that were more successful than others. I was not very successful at it at all. Uh, but other uh, students in the class were, were somewhat more successful. And when we found out that, <laughs> that Donald Tovey had published a, a book, uh, 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 a Beethoven analyst had published a book where he had done virtually the same thing and they copied him. So it was kind of cheating in a way. I always thought that if you're in school, you do your own work. And I would suggest this for anybody in life. If you're going to do something, do it yourself. Don't copy from anybody else's work. Do your own. Don't look at somebody else's analysis. If you have to analyze something, analyze it yourself and do what your capability is and what your insight is. You might find a whole different way of looking at something than an, an acknowledged master. When I looked at the Moonlight Sonata, I looked at the I did an analysis of it, and I found a complete disparity with what other analysts had done. So it, my analysis is just as valid. I can justify it as much as any other theorist, okay? Makes no difference. If you can make it, gives you understanding of the piece, that's valid for you, all right? There's no, there's no hard and fast rule. The harmonic structure and the way it's taught, we have different types of analysis. Piston had a, a harmony book. Schoenberg had a harmony book. Um, 
uh, uh, Schachter had a, uh, has a harmony book on a method of analysis, and then we have Schenkerian analysis, which is just mind-numbingly complex, and doesn't necessarily give you any greater insight into how the composer thought. So when you're looking at a work as a composer or even as a performer, you'd like to know, how was that, what was that composer thinking about? Why did he go? Why did he, here we are jumping along in, in, in C minor, all of a sudden there's a D major chord. Why is that D major there? What does it do? Where is he going? Okay, so why did uh, Mozart choose to develop the modulation in the passages he did in that little sonata, uh, in the little C major sonata? Why didn't he use uh, one of the themes? When he went to the development, he developed the transitory, the, the modulatory passages. Beethoven did the same thing. Why did Beethoven choose to do something similar? Did he use that early uh, or late sonata in Mozart's life as a model? We don't know. If he used models as a reference, he might have. He certainly met Mozart. We know he met him, but he never really studied with him. Okay? He actually studied with Haydn. And we can find quotes from both Haydn and Mozart in Beethoven sonatas and Beethoven works. We can find where he took parts right out of the piano works of Mozart and stuck them right into his pieces. I might even do a show about that. But it's interesting. That's interesting that, that he did that citations and quotations. It's been done by composers for, uh, forever, including Strauss with the, also Strauss Zarathustra, which if you don't get over the beginning part, which everybody knows from 2001, uh, the Space Odyssey, but if you get into the actual piece and see how it develops, he basically, basically sound uh, uh, in styles of different composers. Very, it's very interesting. Um, because it doesn't really give you any insight into the sonata form, so, but it's nice to know how composers work. Here's an interesting side note on the, on the relationship uh, between Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. It's, a very, it's a kind of a funny one. Haydn was a Freemason, and uh, he got Mozart, uh, and who joined the same Masonic lodge as Haydn was in, and, uh, and, uh, and while we don't have any Haydn works that seem to uh, display anything of, of, of uh, the Masonic influence or anything like that. We do have three or four major Mozart works, including the Magic Flute, which basically use Masonic ritual as the form of the piece. Now, there's all kinds of theories about Mozart's death, and one of them was that the Masons killed him because he had let out all the Masonic uh, um, inner inner workings and all that, but that doesn't seem to have any validity or be true at all. In fact, um, uh, Musical Quarterly, which is considered the scholarly journal of musicology, which is a study of music and the history of music and that type of thing, published an article called uh, Salieri and the Death of Mozart. Now, I actually did a report. We had a, an assignment to do a report and find an article out of the Musical Quarterly, and that's the one I picked. And, and uh, if the, the students in the class being somewhat more, uh, I don't know how you would say it, more conservative or something. They were, they were mad at me because I picked this article. And the, and the teacher said, well, why did you pick this article? I said, look, you said get an article out of Musical Quarterly. You didn't say I couldn't get a an article that examined the death of Mozart and Salieri's influence and all that stuff in a scholarly manner. What's the idea here is we're looking at the scholarship behind the article, not whether I'm listening to somebody else's analysis of the Beethoven uh, Kreutzer Sonata. You know, I, I don't understand. that. If you want to analyze the Kreutzer Sonata, you analyze it yourself. He liked it. The students in the class protested. And I got an A in the class, and they, uh, 
they all protested my grade because uh, I did all I work I did, every piece I did, and I went through all of my school this way, I did it myself. I analyzed it myself based on what I was taught, harmonic theory. Now, I might have been wrong. There were times that I wasn't, uh, wasn't correct or pieces that I had difficulty with, but I did it myself. And it's more important to do that than to go to the library and look up what somebody else said and give a recitation of somebody else's analysis. I don't think that has anything to do with learning about music. All right, so let's look at the sonata form. Because I've done all this, every analysis I do here, everything I do, I've done it myself. I haven't used any references. I might look at a reference to see where I jibe or don't jibe with things, but I won't use them. And if I use a reference, I'll tell you, I use it. When I uh, uh, did the stuff on uh, contemporary music, I told you I used the book uh, the, on contemporary resources, okay? All right, so let's take a further look at sonatas, and now uh, let's hear. Well, what do we know? Remember, we've already talked about them a little bit. The form developed from an improvisation, uh, improvisatory in, uh, instrumental work, okay? Came out of public theater. It was uh, one of these things people wanted to hear in between singing acts. These guys would come on and say, yeah, let's hear this guy play. He sounds really good. Um, it became one of the most popular, if not the most popular form used by classical artists or art music, not just the classical period, but by art composers, remember? difference between art music and popular music. What is it? The development, the idea that you can develop it and transit and do those type of things. There is some small use of that in popular music, but nothing like using classical music. Popular music now is doing stuff that composers did in the 1400s and 1300s. So it's not, it's not the same type of intellectual exercise where you're using elements of the music to expand the idea musically. All right. Uh, it developed over time into the three-part form we have now. We, there are binary sonatas, and we're going to look at a couple of those today. In fact, one I played, the Scarlatti, and we're going to look at that because it's a kind of an unusual one. It evolved. It changed form. It didn't start as it is. It started as something different and then slowly evolved into a strict form, and, uh, and, and composers have used the form, and it has changed as composers use it. Each work called a sonata is slightly or in some cases, enormously different from other sonatas. Okay, I picked two, the, remember the Mozart and the Moonlight, and they're a lot different from other sonatas. In fact, uh, the, the, the Moonlight is called quasi un fantasia, meaning about like a fantasy, but a lot of people have said it's almost like a rondo, and other people have said it's different things, so they've analyzed it differently. All have some similarities. All sonatas have so certain similarities, depending on the composer, and the social milieu when the work was written. Now remember, composers work within their time. They can't work outside of their time. They can, they can advance harmonic feelings and they can advance harmonic language and point to the future, but nobody can write in the future. People don't do that. Oh, that's futuristic music. That's the music of the future. Well, we don't know what music of the future is. We just don't know. Uh, music can take any direction. There's nobody that says music has to be this or it has to be that. Music is going to go the way the popular things take music. It's not going to happen because uh, people are sitting in a cave writing uh, scribes, and then 100 years later people discover it and said, oh, this is the way music should have gone, and we're going to now change everything. It doesn't work that way. Music goes as it goes. Composers write. They write for their time. It can sound unusual. It can sound whatever, but that doesn't mean it's future. 
It doesn't mean it's pointing towards the future. And Schoenberg, remember, went for atonality and, and the disassociation and the breakup of the melody and all these different types of things in the orchestra and, uh, and took abstraction to a point. And, and then John Cage picked it up and took it to silence. Where do you go after that? Where do you go after silence? I have no idea where you would go. I mean, I write, you know, as, as uh, my interview with Aurelio, what do you write? Four minutes and uh, Cage wrote four minutes, 33 seconds. And oh, you'll double it. You know, eight minutes and 66 seconds, you know, and, or, or some dumb thing like that. So, you know, we don't, uh, we don't know. Music goes where it goes. Composers write and they compose and, uh, and that's it. It's the music of their time and that's how they write. Okay. They exist within a social milieu. We know that. The social, they don't, they, they write too far outside the social, what's accepted as musically social. If they get too far out, they lose audience and eventually the music becomes unimportant. Remember, social trends at the time help determine how a composer writes. We talked about this. And, and, uh, and uh, what kind of works find interest by the public. Okay. If a composer were to write works uh, today that were virtual copies of existing things. If we have some composer says, well, I'm going to start writing exactly like Beethoven and started writing like Beethoven sonatas and exactly the same, people wouldn't take him seriously. One of the reasons for this is not that the composer couldn't be a good composer. Maybe the composer is good. Maybe he's as good as Beethoven. But this brings up an interesting paradox in music. Isaac Asimov one time was asked, he's a, a science fiction writer and a, and a scientist of sorts and a brilliant, brilliant fellow, was asked, well, let's say we find a kid in Brazil and he's lived in this small little Indian uh, tribe and he's had minimal exposure to uh, education, right? But uh, he has inter interacted with the Western world and, and has done things. I mean, so, but he all of a sudden develops mathematically the Pythagorean theorem. Now, would his invention and discovery of the theory of Pythagoras be the same as Pythagoras's discovery? Some thousands of years earlier. And Asimov said, no, it wouldn't. And the reason was, is that the world has been changed because of the development of the Pythagoras theorem. The world has changed, and this person, even if he would have had any kind of interaction with it, would have seen the results of that change. Consequently, it wouldn't be the same level of discovery because Pythagoras developed it out of something that the world wasn't modified by that theorem, or was in a way but not codified and, and identified with that type of uh, manipulation, in other words, mathematical manipulation. Okay, Anton Bruckner, for example, let's take it musically. Anton Bruckner loved Richard Wagner. He loved him. I, this guy worshipped the ground that Wagner wa walked on. He was, it was just idolized the man. In fact, most of his music sounds like orchestrated Wagner. Without Wagner, there would be no Bruckner. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's complex, it's big, but uh, it still sounds extremely Wagner. If you hear it, you think, well, is that, is that Bruckner? Is that, is that Wagner? You know, but you know if there's no vocal parts, it's probably Bruckner. But as his music, as music moves forward, Bruckner will be less and less and less and less important, eventually fall out of the repertory because people don't tend to be attracted to copies of things. 
as, as music moves forward and develops in different ways and does different things, they tend to go for things that are original. And uh, the original of Wagner will stay original. They might, Bruckner might stay around for a while. There used to be a composer, Louis Spohr. Every time you go to a concert, you'd hear a Louis Spohr work. Louis Spohr this, Louis Spohr that. That's gone. Don't ever hear. Nobody does them anymore. Maybe a little school band that needs a small piece for something. But for in general, the music is very insipid, and it and it's, uh, doesn't do much. And it's kind of retrograde-looking music. So... Uh, you, you just never know. Now, some of the works of Bruckner are quite good. I mean, they're, they're, they're nice to listen to, but they're not the original stuff. They're derivative. And you find yourself saying, well, that sounds like Wagner. Well, that sounds like, well, who wants to listen to a work and say, that sounds like this, that sounds like that, unless you intend it that way for some kind of reason that you're saying it. As I mentioned, also Sprach Zarthustra by Richard Strauss. Uh, uh, another example, uh, we, uh, uh, Rodrigo, wrote the Concerto Aranjuez, and he also wrote the Andules, which is the, 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 the four-guitar version, um, slightly different. But after he wrote that, composers started writing. I mean, it was the first time that the guitar really had, made, had been a prominent orchestral concerto work for the guitar and orchestra. There had been some written before, but they were not, not very good. But, uh, but this concerto was, really has some meat to it. it has, it's really good, and people really like it. And then uh, after he wrote it, of course, people started copying him. There have been hundreds of copies out there of people writing something similar. Some of them are more successful. Some are less successful on their own. But still, they're copies. It sounds that they sound like the Rodrigo work. Now, they might have some instant success. They're nice to listen to. They're this. And, and oh, the person's such a genius that wrote it and all that. It might be. We don't know. You know we don't know the intelligence of anybody until we test them and do all types of things that way. But, um, and, and some stand on their own, they're okay. But over time, they will disappear from the repertory. One is people won't find interest in performing them and they won't attract people in a sense to a school of what the guy was doing. Well, how are they doing it? Well, this is a copy. Why go to the copy when you can go to the original? Now, why have composers been able to use a sonata style and other composers' works as models, which they, that's what you do when you study work. You study a, a, a composer's works. You study their models, and then you try to do your own thing. Uh, why has it been so popular? Why has it stayed around? And, and yet they don't, have, they don't directly copy. I mean, there's been, there's been citations and things that people use, but, uh, but those are more done as a, an homage, as done as a, this is a good work. Well, why aren't they like, more like Bruckner? Uh, the, why isn't it more? Bruckner, of course, wrote those works, and some of them are sonata style. Some are rondo. Some are those big symphonies. One of the reasons that, for the most part, composers are rewarded for focusing and using forms to establish his own style, not copy another composer's style. Composers that tend to be more original, even if it doesn't sound right, but breaks all the rules, they tend to be the things that stay around and last. The ones that follow all the rules pedantically, everything has followed the rules and I did it this way, and this is supposed to be like this, and this is, this is eight measures, this is supposed to be eight measures, and, but, uh, but, uh, and I did it that way. Those tend to be boring works. The ones that are interesting are the ones that it's supposed to be eight measures and eight measures, and the guy says, oh, I'm going to make this part ten. It's eight measures and ten measures. 
or I'm going to make this one eight and then repeat it and then make another one of six and repeat that. So, you know, you never know what they're going to do. Those are the ones that tend to last. J.S. Bach was very popular now. You know, thanks, thanks Felix Mendelssohn started this society and preserved a lot of the works. A lot of works, uh, both him and his sister, started this uh, ancient music society type of thing. And they would uh, dig up all these old scores and preserve them and perform them and do stuff like that. But Bach, in his day, was not very popular. He was popular, but his sons were far more popular, especially Carl Philip Emanuel. He was much more popular. So uh, we know him now as C.P.E. Bach. So J.S. Bach wrote relatively few sonatas. He wrote some. And we suspect, and this is partly my suspicion and, and other, I've read it also after I came up with it, that, that Bach might have written the sonatas because they were, they were asked for. In other words, he wouldn't have written them just to write them. He wrote them because they were commissions. People wanted to find out, have in the royal places or in the, uh, somebody who had a, an estate wanted to commission something and had heard about the sonata and said, well, well, make a sonata for me and write these. But his son, Carl Philip Emanuel, wrote quite a few. Uh, and it was allowed, he developed all that thing, the sturm und drang, the, 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 the emotion. He could be more emotional using the sonata form. So many composers wrote sonatas, not all of them using the three-part form that we now know, the three-part sonata form, and we talked about it. Domenico Scarlatti wrote over 60 keyboard works titled sonatas, but they are not in the three-part form. They're in what we call binary form. Okay, Binary form, as we learned in the last show, consists of two major parts. Most popular music is binary, you know, A, uh, the verse, and B, the chorus. A, the verse, B, the chorus. A, the verse, B, the chorus. Sometimes you can wander around and change it, but it's basically two parts. The binary form in the sonata is very similar. So let's take a look at the binary sonata and Scarlatti's use of it. I've got two Scarlatti works. I played one at the beginning. I'm going to replay it, and we'll look at it because it's kind of kind of tricky. It's a little unusual. And we'll look at another one. And uh, but the form is very simple. Theme A, modulation to dominant, a repeat. Theme B, B or variations of theme A, and modulation back to the tonic. That's it. Usually the piece is delineated by a big repeat, and the, the sections are repeated. Sometimes with alternate endings, sometimes not. But uh, I've got two works of Scalati. One is um, he his stuff is cataloged under this Longo system. And uh, Longo 83, which is a very early work in G, and then Longo 413, which is a later, much later work, of course. And it's in D minor, but this is where it's unusual, and we'll talk about that and see how that worked out. So let's play the G major, little one in G, and, uh, and then we'll take a look at what it is. I'm going to play just the harmonies. Here they are. G to the dominant, 
Back to the tonic, back to the dominant, to the three, to the four, to the five, to the one. That's basically it. That's the first part of the phrase that you hear. Okay? The second part starts on one and modulates to the dominant. So it starts on the tonic here, and it goes to the dominant, but then it pivots. This acts as a pivot, so now it, this is five in G, but it's one in D, and then it goes to the five of D, and then back to the one. Then up to the four, which would be a G, and back to the one, to the five, back to the one. So there we are in the dominant. We've modulated through to the dominant. Remember, this is a binary form. So there's only one theme here. It's a theme cut in half. It's the themes are done in, in what they called antecedent and consequent, but we'll talk about that some other. In other words, the beginning part of the theme and the ending part of the theme. And that's what basically a binary form thing is. Now we enter up into the the, the second part, the binary, the, the development. This would be like the development part. And he takes the same theme and he develops it around. So let's take another listen at the first part and the second part again. There's the first part ending. I'm going to repeat it. The dominant or D, and we're going to modulate back to the tonic, which is one. The G. Here it comes. Back to G. And then we're going to repeat the section right here. Bum, 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 bum. Five to one. Remember, how do you establish a key in this era was the dominant to tonic relationship. That's how it was done. Okay. So we've looked at the sonata, the little sonata. Now let's look at another Scarlatti sonata. This one is 413. It's somewhat later, and it's different because it starts in minor. Now, what does that mean? Starts in minor. So it's a minor key. Big deal. In the minor, things that started in minor keys, sonatas that started in minor keys, did not modulate to the dominant. They tended to modulate to the relative major of that minor. What are we talking about? What do you mean relative major? My only relatives I know about are my uncles and my aunts and that stupid brother-in-law who's a, who's a bum and always borrowing money from me. So what is the relative minor? Okay, let's take a look at that. This piece is in D minor. The key signature of D minor is one flat. What other key also has a key signature of one flat is F major. So the relative major to D minor is F major. So if I play D minor, I play a D minor scale, and this is what it's gonna be. There's that B flat right there. If I play an F major scale, it's, there's a B flat. So remember the modes, remember back to the modes. This is kind of minor, major, these are the both two were the Greek modes. It was the Aeolian and the Ionian. The major was the Ionian, Aeolian was the minor. Okay, so the relative major. In the sonatas that Scarlatti wrote, for the most part, not every single time, but for the most part, when he started in a minor, he did not modulate to the dominant, 
but to that relative major, to the F, and he established the key of F by the dominant relationship of F to C to F. He modulated to the relative major of that minor. So this one's in D minor, and the relative major is F. Okay, and he does that right from the beginning, as you will hear. Hey, that was a version played by Glenn Gould. You can hear him harmonizing. He, he sings, a, Glenn Gould sang a lot when he performed, and he performed these as, as Scarlatti wanted them. Some, they've been rewritten and, and expanded in many ways, but these are the original ones, that uh, the ur text, as we say, as, as Scarlatti intended them. So, um, what is this relative minor? What is this relative, where is the relative minor, and uh, what is this doing? So I'm gonna play it again, and I'm going to stop it, and then we'll talk, and I'll show you where the modulations occur. They occur all over the place, and there's a lot of, a lot of uh, what we call sequential passages, and I'll point those out when we get to them. So let's start. Remember, we started in D minor. A little sequential passage here. There's this pet section where we go five to one to five to one. That's all we're doing, D minor. Here comes the modulation to F, right here. This is where an F now. F pedal. F pedal to the end. Uh, cutting out the repeat, so we're into the development now. Second part of the binary form. Modulating around. The use of the thematic material brought in. Sequential passage. 
here's where we modulate back to D. Here's where on five to one to five again, that tonic to dominant, but we're now back in D. Pedal to the end. Here's the pedal. Indeed, back to D minor. So what did we do? We started in D minor. Instead of modulating to the dominant, we went to the relative major, F, and we ended that first section at the F on the tonic. So now the F, the relative major, is now considered the tonic. We do that by establishing what? Dominant to tonic relationship, okay? Then we head off to the binary, the section, sec second section, and we take elements of the first and we manipulate them. We go through a harmonic modulation passage where we go all over the place. And then we come back basically to a theme in D minor again. And we go through that all the way through D minor, 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 all the way to the end. Okay, that's all the piece is. It's binary form. It's still a sonata because it has a development and a recapitulation part put in there. But it's, not, it's still an early form. This isn't the full-blown development section that we have in the later sonatas, the Mozart and the Beethoven sonatas, that type of thing. Let's play another Scarlatti sonata. This is from that same early ones. This is a Longo 386, and we're going to play that. This one is in um, uh, G minor, G minor. So it's another minor one, and let's hear if it uh, indeed goes to the relative major, which would be what? What, you would say? It's B-flat. So let's see if that is indeed what happens.
Okay, Scarlatti has fooled us again somehow. Instead of going to the relative major in a minor key, he goes to the dominant. So we have in G minor, he modulates to the dominant, which is D major. And he establishes that at the end of the exposition, the first section. Now, he also, in the development or the section part, remember this is a binary form, it's not a three part, so there's no real capitulation in the sense. It's all the first theme taken, modified, and then brought back in and ended and, and modulated back to the tonic, which is back to the G minor. That's how he ends the piece. The end of the first half, though, is ended in D major, and I'm gonna play that for you. Okay, start G minor. Here we go. Establish it by dominant tonic relationships. He modulates by sequence, and we'll talk about that after this section is done. Here's the sequence. Another sequence. D major. Okay, starts in G minor, ends in D major. That section, okay? So he's now modulated, established the new key. Now he's going to do his little development section and the B section starts in that D. Eventually he modulates back to the G minor, and he ends the piece through sequence. All right, what is a sequence? We talked about that. What's a sequence? Here's a sequence. Sequence is basically the same melodic pattern, but shifted a note in a one direction either time or a harmony each time. We can have all different kinds of sequences. All those are sequences, okay? Scarlatti loved the sequence. In those days, the longer the sequence, the better, the longer the sequence. It took Bach until Bach, until Bach said, look, two times, enough. Get rid of the sequence. Who cares how many times that goes? Uh, it took the minimalists until the minimalists again to say, two, are you crazy? We want 10,000. So the sequence is an important part of music. Remember we talked about composers' devices that composers use, and you could modulate by, by establishing a sequence and going through a set of keys. And that's what Scarlatti did. He was a master at it. So what kind of things can you do with a sequence? Well, what Scarlatti did with sequences was modulate. He used the sequence to modulate from one key to another key. And for a long time, in much early Baroque music, uh, this was the way people modulated. They didn't use, they used pivots, but they used them differently. It was much more common at the time to use sequences to modulate because you could set up a pattern and then end up in another key by establishing a dominant, remember? How do you establish key? Dominant to tonic relationships, right? Tonic and to dominant, to tonic, right? That's how you establish key. But let's say I wanted a sequence. One of the things I can use a sequence to do is to modulate. Let's say I want to go from A major here and I want to modulate to F. Well, that's pretty remote. Okay, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to play A, 
and play B, all major chords, C, D, up to E, I'm going to go to F, then I'm going to establish the dominant by going to the dominant of F is C, back to F. Using a sequence to modulate, very common in uh, pre-Bach, even in Bach, uh, he used some sequences that way. But remember Bach only used a, a couple. He didn't think that more than two sequences was considered in good taste at his time. Uh, his sons followed on too. And ever since that time, it's been the rule kind of, of, of composing that you don't sequence more than two times. It was considered because Bach only did it twice. You would, uh, you could only do it twice. Who could? How dare you think you were as good as Bach? Another there's an interesting aspect about this about legends and things in music. You know, Beethoven wrote nine symphonies. Until uh, the twentieth century, people did not write more than nine symphonies. Schubert wrote the the great, the C major symphony nine, but he didn't write ten. Uh, Mahler tried to write a 10th symphony and had a very difficult time. He didn't, didn't want to do it because how could you write more symphonies than Beethoven? I mean, this legend had come that, that nine was, was not enough. Beethoven wrote the ninth symphony, and how could you do better than nine symphonies? Of course, Shostakovich has like 30 of them, and uh, other people have written a lot of symphonies since then. It does, the number finally doesn't matter. It's, the, it's the, how good the music is, all right? And, and one of the things we have with sonatas one of the things that's nice about the sonata form is that we can look at it over a bunch of different composers over a very long time in a bunch of different styles, not only social styles, but a composer's personal style, and we get an idea of how composers utilize this one form. In the popular world, it would be kind of like listening to blues. And if you listen to blues, how many times? Blues is a, is a certain format. It's 12-bar blues. It has a tonic, a dominant, a subdominant, and that's it. There's three chords. There's no development, really. Uh, there's nothing like that. But how people have used the blues, that whole 12-chord thing over time, has determined how things sound. And they all sound a little bit different. Right now, we exist in a time when people think that sounding old-timey or sounding authentic is somehow sounding a certain way, and especially in popular music. You sound, you've got to sound like you're from the mountains and you have to have a story. We were down by the barn and we were bringing in our natural organic food content and, 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 and milking our cows and we live up here in Northern California, not like all you, you slugs down here in the city. And, and people go to this stuff and they go to see folk singers, especially in the folk realm, and they go to see these people, and they think, oh, these people are really into it. I mean, they're growing their own food, and this is the real organic people. They're back to the earth, back to the earth. You know, it's that the, the fantasy and the mythology that we present ourselves with. Well, classical musicians are not immune from it either. And we have in the classical music world, there's a mythology about different things and how, how you do stuff and uh, those type of things. Nothing quite as apparent as as the folk singing uh, type of look and the, the whole type of attitude and, you know, people from Chicago with southern accents and stuff like that are trying to sound like you're from the Delta, you know, and then, of course, singers, as they get popular, make a mythology for it. I don't know that we ever had something like that in, in classical music. Probably the closest thing, I mean, we had 
of course, entertainers and, and good performers were always wildly entertaining and, and came up with all kinds of things to, to accentuate their performances. But we know uh, that, that certainly Paganini uh, was, was so popular, it was, was just virtually unbelievable. I mean, look, Beethoven wrote the, the first movement of the Moonlight Sonata. I did a little analysis of it, and we talked about it. He I didn't like that. He actually thought the, the fact that that was so popular was a negative thing. He wrote in, in Carl Cherney, his student, and, uh, and he said, look, uh, why do they want to spend so much time on the Ninth the Symphony? It was, it was on the uh, Ninth Symphony, on the uh, Moonlight Sonata. It's certainly not my best sonata, and it's not the most interesting musically. Uh, why don't they look at my F major or my F sharp or any of the other ones that he wrote? wrote? And uh, you know, he was uh, distressed, in a sense, uh, that, that, that that was so popular and people all wanted to play it. Of course, he wrote for Elise, which is now every schoolgirl eventually wants to play that piece. So it's, you know, who knows what ends up going in and out of popularity. It has to do with what's going on socially and what's going on in so many different ways that we, we can't categorize them all. So we looked at the sonata form. Now, one of the interesting things about the sonata form, of course, is that it is an evolving form. And the sonata form has led us to this.
All right, that's Piano Sonata Number no. 3 by Vashislav Nagovitsyn, a contemporary Russian uh, uh, composer, working today, living today, still writing. And uh, you can hear, I played that so you can hear the difference in how a contemporary sonata might sound. It's still the sonata form. It still uses thematic development. I will take maybe a little time in the next show, we don't have enough time now, to break it down and show you where the sections are. Uh, but we might take a completely different direction. Um, one of the things that I've been looking at is the origins of music. I was told that music came a certain way. Nothing really happened until Pythagoras and Plato and uh, the Greeks basically defined what the, the tones and the modes and the musical systems and things like that. We're finding out uh, musicologically that, that music uh, w was in a much more firm shape uh, a thousand years before that, even before. And um, they've been doing some research in Mesopotamia, some of the Sumerians and, uh, and Babylonians and, uh, and uh, those people, not necessarily the Syrians because they were they're kind of an offshoot group, but even uh, some uh, research into the Egyptians and the Egyptian form of music, but mostly Middle East. Uh, Babylonians doing a lot of research there in cuneiform. Anything that uh, uh, Sumerian and cuneiform, those type of things, seem to be a remarkable culture. And, and um, they found lots of uh, uh, integrations, a lot of things that fit together. One of them was that their, their uh, number system was a 60 base system, which is like our musical system. It's just based on 12s and, and 60s. It's not a, a decimal-based uh, musical system. It's, a, it's a based on 12. Their number system was based on 12, as was their religious uh, system. So they kind of integrated and uh, they start to discover that they actually had, had counterpoint. They actually wrote harmonies, uh, not harmonies in the sense that we know them in the, in the West, the common practice harmonies, but they did write harmonies. Anyway, we're looking at the sonata. We've been through, uh, of course, uh, the Mozart, Beethoven. We took a look at the first movement of the Moonlight. We've had now today some Scarlatti examples of, of binary sonatas. There are also sonatas, and we played a, uh, a sonata number three, uh, written in 1982, by the way, by uh, Vashislav uh, Nagovitsyn. And um, I'm going to send him a, an email and, uh, and see if we can uh, get him interviewed on the show. It would be an interesting thing. Anyway, this is Musical Explorations. This is Ted Peterson. Until next week. <laughs>